today is the last day of our uh, series on identity. As we've been sharing for the last 10 weeks, Greg's going to bring us home with this message. And uh, so I'm excited about this. And so, Greg, I want to invite you to come on up, brother, and, and give us what the Lord's given you. Well, I know when the leadership team was uh, meeting with each other and seeking the Lord in terms of what series we were going to cover, and we began the Identity Series some couple months ago, I guess, in that planning process, you know, we, we sort of schemed for the last service to be a blowout. So we started out well, I believe, you know. We've, we've, we've had the residue of a really nice worship night on Friday night, and uh, we just carried right into that. And so that was very, very good. And so we are talking about identity. Again, this is the last uh, installment on this series, but I'm not going to, I'm going to tell you that we could have went for the rest of the year on this subject. Because when you're talking about equipping the saints, you know, the people that are the born-again children of God, that equipping process is not instantaneous. And it's something that has to be worked into your soul. It's something that has to be renewed to your mind. That mind renewal process is not instantaneous. Sometimes we can be quickened, but most of the time it's a process of repetition and hearing and hearing and hearing the word. And, and so there's a lot of things to talk about. One of the last things that we wanted to talk about we, was our identity in the Holy Spirit. You know, we covered the mirror, the Word of God. That is the mirror, like James said. If any man behold his image in the mirror, and that talks about, you know, the, the person that would hear the Word and do it in the same breath, if you will, or the same verses. That's likening the Word of God to a mirror. Well, how do you know who you're, what your identity is? How can you see your image lest you look into a mirror? Or unless someone tell you about what you look like? Has anyone ever given you a perspective on your image? Was it nice? Well, I can ensure you that if you'll look into the Word of God, everything you'll get from the perspective of God is right there, folks. And it's good. Talked about the mirror. We talked about our identity in salvation, our identity in Jesus, if you will, in salvation, our identity in righteousness. Then we moved on from there and talked about our, the identity in ourself, if you will. How do I see me? Cornell did a great job about that and identity in others, how we see others, why do we do what we do. And now here we move to our identity in the Holy Spirit. And I think it's fitting to end with really what is the equipping for power, or with power, I should say, to talk about our identification with the power that has been given to us, or that, that I should say really that is available to us, because some of us don't avail ourselves of it. Even spirit-filled believers don't. Oh, come on now. I'm preaching better than you're amening. I'm talking about myself here, too. We don't even, I don't, sometimes I think we don't even believe what we preach based on the fruit in our lives. I'm talking about myself now. So that's the last area that we're covering. You know, and CJ began last week, my goodness, to cover the essence of the Holy Spirit Man, we could spend a long time on that, folks. And here we've tried to do it in two weeks. Well, you know what? We're not trying to give you the full load. We're trying to give you perspectives that you can carry forth and then dig into the Word for yourself. And then we'll see how the Holy Ghost leads us later on. But he covered some of the evidence, if you will, and the, the uh, fruit of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and spent specific time about praying in other tongues, receiving your spiritual language, which is the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit which I will be covering today. So let's revisit baptism for a minute. You know, we, I gave a, a message back before Christmas, about a week before Christmas on baptism. You can go back and access that through the iPod podcast format or MP3, whatever device you have to access that, your computer. If you want to go listen to that, there's a lot of, of teaching brought out in that about 50 minutes, 55 minutes or so on baptism, the doctrine of baptisms. I'm not going to cover all the different kinds of baptism. We're talking about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. But I feel like that it bears importance to revisit what really the word baptism means, what it comes from in the original language. And it comes from a word, when you see the word baptism in the New Testament, 
it comes from the word in the original language, baptizo. Okay? And we, we look at that word in order to get the true meaning of what it's meant, what is conveyed by the word baptism. And when we see that word, really what it means is it means to immerse or be completely overwhelmed in the experience thereof. Folks, we're talking about our identity in the Holy Spirit. And the identity in the Holy Spirit really begins as far as the power of the Holy Ghost in our lives with the new birth and then the infilling or baptism in the Holy Ghost. That's what we're talking about. That's why we're talking about baptism, revisiting this term. So when we talk about being baptized in the Holy Spirit, then let's just insert that in the blank. It really means to be immersed or completely overwhelmed in the experience of the power of the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. That's right. Amen. That's exactly right. And then if you look at the root word, we can learn even more. It comes from the root word, babto. And really what this talks about, it means to dip something, if you will. And dip, though, is a temporary experience. Whereas baptizo, if you put it together, really talks about a, an experience where there is a continual dipping to the point that the, the article that is being immersed becomes completely overwhelmed in the essence of what's being dipped. We're talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, folks. Can you apply this to that experience? Yes, that's why I'm delivering it to you. Think about the baptism of the Holy Spirit from this perspective. Being completely overwhelmed in the experience of the relationship of the power of the Holy Ghost and your identification in that. I might have to put my gum down. Hallelujah. And so I believe I talked about baptism in another manner, and that is the practical manner of what baptism really means. And it really is, if folks, if you want to boil it down to the residue, baptism is really symbol, it's a symbolic action of identification, which we get back to identity again. It's a symbolic um, experience of the, of the identification so in practicality, it really symbolizes an action whereby we become identified with something. And that really does relate to this series, identity. And so if you talk about baptisms, let's just talk about a couple of them. We can talk about John's baptism. It's a baptism unto repentance. So what does it mean when you receive John's baptism? And we can see that chronicled in some of the Gospels before Jesus came along. Well, what it meant was you were identifying with the need to repent and follow after God's principles. You're identifying with repentance. When you receive Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, the evangelical Christian, Jesus talked about going forth and making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. There's multiple baptisms there. Well, the, here's the deal. When we're baptized as an outward representation of an inward work in terms of Jesus, we're identifying with what Jesus accomplished for us. We're identifying. We're identifying. That's really what baptism is about. It symbolizes water baptism, our identification with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. You know, Romans 6, 4, everyone hears this a lot of times whenever we minister baptism. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ. Everybody say, just as Christ. See, there's the identification. See, we're being identified with something that just as Christ did, we are identifying with that. Do you all see that? So in practicality, baptism has to do with identification. Well, what is it? Let's just finish it out so we don't leave you hanging there. What is it that water baptism really uh, uh, brings us to in terms of an identification? Well, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in death like his, buried with him in baptism, then we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his, raised together with him in newness of life. That's what we say. That's what baptism represents. It's our identification being buried with him in death unto our former ways. And why is it that Jesus had to die? Because he took on those ways of us, folks, that separated us from God. And then he was killed for that reason. He bore the punishment for us. And then all that was laid to rest eternally, eternally folks, because he completed the work. 
And let me tell you what, when, my, when, someone, when Jesus, my Savior, utters words that say it is finished, folks, there's not anything else to be done. There's not anything else to be done. Jesus finished it. So we're identifying with that finished work. That's the water baptism. So here's the deal, folks. Baptism in the Holy Ghost is no different. I'm kind of old school. I use the word ghost. It's an old King James word for spirit. Don't get upset or be fearful. I don't know why, but I've read and studied a lot in the King James 1611 uh, you know, edition of the Bible, and so that comes out of me sometimes. And it's a warm fuzzy to me because I learn things in that version. So it's not that's the only authorized version of the, Lord, the Lord's Word. That happens to be a version that I identify with because I learned a lot under that. So it just comes out of me. <laughs> Holy Ghost, that, I like that, man. It just, I don't know, something warm about that for me. Maybe you, it's not for you. Use Holy Spirit, same thing. Amen. Okay, so baptism in the Holy Spirit is no different. And, the, you know, the practical explanation, folks, I want everyone to listen very closely. The practical, the practical, in other words, what, how do we boil this down? What do we put this into in terms of, of everyday knowledge, something that we can grab a hold of? Not theory, not theologic commentary, but an absolute something that can be applied, something that I can look at, a model that means something the practical explanation of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is our identification with the Holy Spirit's power in our life. Man, where there's been so many arguments, there's two camps. Yes, it applies. No, it doesn't apply. It died out with the apostles. It lives today. And I've got to tell you, it's, it's, a, it's a travesty. It's a travesty. And isn't it interesting because the enemy... He is so crafty because one of the greatest areas, this happens to be one of the greatest areas of disagreement among evangelical Christians. Once you get past baptism, then this becomes itself one of the greatest areas for evangelical Christian circles. Why is that the case? Why is there such a schism in this? You want me to tell you why? Very simple. It's the full and true source of the power for Christian living, folks. And if, you can, if the devil can get you uh, high-centered in the concept to where, you cannot, where that's not manifest in your life, then guess what? You don't have the power. You don't have the power to be the witness that God's called you to be. That's not my words. That's not my interpretation. That's not a theologic explanation. That is the word of the living God. And I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to you unabated unabashed hallelujah so the enemy strives hard to keep christians from connecting to and operating from that perspective he doesn't want you to become identified with the power of god in your life and that is the precious anointing of the holy ghost through the baptism of this of the spirit so let's go through some introductory points about what baptism of the holy spirit really is <clears throat> Well, number one, it's a gift. And God fully intends for every person. Let's everyone say every person. Every person means me. Let's say that. Every person means me. I don't know about you, but the last time I checked or last time I understood what the word every means, it's pretty much inclusive. It's a gift, folks. And God fully intends, our Father, for every person to receive it. And it exemplifies the era that we live in now, today as a church. The era, the dispensation of the Holy Spirit that characterizes our age now from the former ages of the church or of the, of the body, if you will. It characterizes us. The dispensation of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit also signifies the last days. And you can notice that Peter, yes, talking about the New Testament here, quotes Joel, a prophecy in Joel, after the baptism in the Holy Spirit in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. And you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it to you. Acts 2.17. You can write it down for reference. In the last days, this is Peter quoting from the book of Joel. God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. 
even on my servants, both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. So here we see a prophetic utterance coming from hundreds of years ago, spoken under the anointing of the Holy Spirit that came upon the prophet Joel, not from within him, but upon him, to speak out this inspired word that even rang true after the Pentecost experience because guess what? It was the manifestation of that prophecy. When, 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 when the uh, um, Pentecostal... Uh, uh, experience took place it was the manifestation of this prophecy the fulfillment of it folks the spirit hit the garment at that point in time the oil went from the head jesus to the garment which is the body the covering of the body of which we are a part those that would believe and receive jesus hallelujah the oil represents the anointing of the holy ghost his enablement his grace and ability that allows you to do things you can't do in and of yourself guess what the power to be a witness. Hallelujah. So let's talk a little bit about the Old Testament because there's a lot to be learned in terms of what the Holy Spirit's anointing and power, how it functioned, how, and what's represented there. So in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit only anointed or came upon, if you will, certain people as determined by the law, at set times appointed by God. These people, or offices, if you will, were kings, priests, and prophets. They were the anointed people, folks. They were the people upon which the Holy Ghost would come and enable to do service in those capacities. Not just any old person. Back in the day, it wasn't for any old person. The Holy Spirit did not come and move upon just any old person, by and large, folks. Yes, there were instances that we can quote. We can look at people like Samson. I mean, he wasn't a king, priest, or prophet, but we see the Holy Ghost come upon him to do some exploits that exceed human ability. We can look at other folks that that kind of thing happened to as well that weren't prophets, kings, and priests. But by and large, it was kings, priests, and prophets that the Holy Ghost came upon that anointed to do the service that God had ordained for them to do. And I'll also point out that how did this anointing come? The anointing for this or the empowerment for this service was commonly ministered. Everybody pay attention now. It was commonly ministered through two symbolic acts that the image of what, which apply today. Not the function of which, but the image of which represent even the Holy Ghost in today's believer lives, believing, believers' lives. The first one is the anointing of oil. We can look in 1 Samuel 16, 13 and see when Samuel comes to anoint David and he, when he has the procession of all of Jesse's sons before him and he comes to the final one, has to pull him out of the field and David comes before him and Saul says, this is the anointed of God's to be the next king, to be this next king. And what does he do? He, pours out, he pulls out a flask of oil and dumps it on him, folks. And, you know, so much you can look in history with regard to the anointing of oil. There was not an index finger tipped into a, vask of, or a flask of oil and a cross put on people's heads. It was a flask that was emptied ounces and ounces and ounces upon a person's head to represent a complete covering and identification with the anointing that the Holy Ghost was going to bring upon their life. That's what it represented, the oil. Leviticus 8.12, Moses anoints Aaron as priest, setting him apart for, guess what? The priestly duties and service. You can also see that even the very instruments that are in the tabernacle to be used as service were also consecrated by oil. So what is the oil again? It's, an, it's a representation, it's symbolic of the Holy Spirit coming upon that, that person's life. The mantle is the second symbolic element or image. And what is a mantle? Well, it's old English for a coat. <laughs> you know, it's just like a cloak, like a trench coat, if you will, is like a mantle. Or an overcoat is like a mantle. It's a garment. A mantle is a garment, folks. How does a garment, how, how do you relate to a garment? You wear it. It doesn't come upon or inside of you. It comes on you, right? You, you get in the garment. That's what mantle, the mantle represents. Folks, we can learn a lot from this. And we can look at the story of Elijah as he chooses Elisha and as he transmits the, the 
calling of the Lord to be the next prophet after to follow him, and then the anointing thereof, what did he do? In 1 Kings 19, 19, so he departed from there being Elijah. He found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plying with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12, and it says, Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. Folks, why would he do something like that? To provide an interesting story for us to read about and the fact that maybe he's just like, I mean, no, he does it because it's symbolic of something. It's symbolic of the same presence of the Holy Ghost that's on his life that because of the word of the Lord that came to him, he is now throwing up or representing that transference of that to Elisha's life. I got to watch out because I can stop and preach about a lot of things right here. Because see, Elisha, he didn't have to receive it. He could have taken that cloak and thrown it down. He could have walked on and that cloak would have stayed behind and Elijah would have picked it up to go to the next person God anointed in his place. Well, I can't go there. Help me, Holy Ghost. So it represents a coming upon of the Holy Spirit, his divine enablement. So here's the deal, folks. The Holy Spirit would reside upon a person, but not within them. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would reside upon, that mantle would come upon like a cloak, but he would not reside within them. He could not. It's not because he didn't want to, folks. Let me tell you, if the Father, this is thus saith Greg, but I think he's probably shed many tears over the fact that he couldn't get as intimate with his divine creation as he desired. He had to wait for the, for the time and times to be fulfilled and Jesus to come to then have the commuted righteousness to our spirit that would place us in a place that the Holy Spirit could then dwell internally. That couldn't happen until after Jesus. Could not happen until after Jesus. So he came upon them. Okay. So the Holy Spirit could only move upon or inspire people in accordance with God's will. This interaction, it could stop at any time. Guess what? For disobedience. I mean, it could cut just as much as that mantle came upon you, it could f- come be jerked right off of you back in the day, folks. You don't believe me? We talked about him once. Let's talk about Samson. Judges 13.25 talks about how the Spirit of God moved or came on Samson to do the things he did. Judges 16.20, not too far down the road, says how the Holy Ghost left Samson. Why are we talking about this, Greg? Well, it's going to become very apparent here as we move on. Stay with me. Saul, he's also another example of the Holy Spirit leaving. He rejected. Saul actually was rejected as king. In fact, he lost the anointing because of his disobedience, because of his brazenness, because of his foolish pride. Man, there's a whole sermon to be talked about. Many lessons to be learned in Saul's life. He was anointed king. But yet he lost that. And you can see in 1 Samuel 15, 23, when he was told by the prophet, it's over for you, buddy. And that's the, that's the Greg version, but you can go read it. That's what it says. Psalm 51, 11. Here's David after he had been talked to by the prophet. Nathan Was it Nathan? After he had slept with Beersheba and had that horrible interaction there that ended up resulting in some terrible things. Or Bathsheba, not Beersheba. Bathsheba Beersheba is a place. How you can remember that is he saw her taking a bath. I digress. (laughs) Psalm 51.11, though, here's David's psalm as he's pouring out before the presence of the Lord, his innermost person, unto God. And what does he say? He acknowledges the potential loss of the Holy Spirit. He's, telling, he's asking to be renewed and to that, uh, give him a steadfast spirit again. He says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. That's David acknowledging that the Holy Ghost could have been taken from him. Okay, now, now agree with me because we're seeing this as a type, type of what we see in the Old Testament as an example, but also agree with me that as we get past Jesus, the Holy Spirit isn't taken from us again. Okay, come on now. We, we haven't gotten there yet, but don't, don't start loading your, the religious gun with the, back, the things to back up the fact the Holy Spirit can leave us. He don't leave us anymore, folks. You know why? Because He don't just come upon us. He comes within us to live. Hallelujah. 
And I don't know about you, but when the Holy Spirit decides to take up residence in someone or God decides to choose and take up residence in someone, He don't come up within them and having cleaned their house to reside within them only to leave and come and leave and come. He comes and says, I'll give you a comfort or I'll be with you forever. Hallelujah. The Holy Spirit. He's our down payment, in fact, is what the Scripture says. Okay, I can't get to preaching about stuff later on here. So since the fall of man, though, folks, God's desire was to reunite man with the indwelling of his spirit. And you can look at the Ark of the Covenant, and you can see an example, if you will, of the the interaction of the Ark of the Covenant, and you can understand that we, actually, it was a model and a type of who we were to become, the carrier of the presence of the living God. Hallelujah. The same power, the same presence, the same person of God exemplified in the stories of the ark now because of Jesus' work can reside within us, folks. We now are the ark after Jesus. Hallelujah. We are his temple. Amen. So when we accept Christ and we become born again, we are made new in spirit. And the thing that prohibited or inhibited God or the Holy Ghost from being able to dwell within man, now that inhibition is gone because now we are made new creatures in Christ, taking on the divine nature of God as righteous and as holy as Jesus from a spiritual perspective is before the Father God. And now we are a habitable dwelling place for the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. Post-Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17, these are scriptures to back up what I just said. We're made a new creature in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, fit for God to dwell. And that's your spirit. That's not your soul and your body. I'm talking about your spirit, your inner man. 1 Corinthians 3.16, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. There's Paul conveying to believers, you are the temple. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, his residence, his dwelling place. Romans 8, 9, and here's the deal, though, the requisite. Only those that are his have the Spirit of God. Only those that accept Jesus and are saved are his. Hallelujah, that's right. So the baptism in the Holy Spirit, what it does really is it comes to energize the work of his presence in our lives. It's the manifest power of that presence. So let's talk about the baptism now. I've laid some groundwork. Well, let's just start with Jesus. Don't you think that's a good place to start? Let's just start with Jesus. You know, John the Baptist over in Matthew 3.11, he indicates a different baptism. And it was one to be administered by Jesus. And listen to what he says, folks. Don't turn or just listen. I baptize you with water for repentance. This is John the Baptist talking. But the one, capital O, who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Hallelujah. See, we see John, who is a baptizer, and in fact became known as John the Baptist. That's talking about one who would come after him that would also baptize. But it wasn't going to be his baptism. It was going to be a different baptism. It was going to usher in a new dispensation. And it was the dispensation of the identification of the people of God with the power that would reside within them. In the person of the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Somebody should get excited. Jesus' empowerment for ministry, folks. We're talking about Jesus first. It start how, how it starts with Jesus. Jesus' empowerment for ministry. It did not occur until, guess what? The Holy Spirit came to dwell within Jesus. Came to dwell upon Him. He didn't have a single miracle. He didn't have a single uh, revelatory ability. He didn't have anything that we see at least in Scripture, folks. You've got go, you to add to Scripture to say it different. You can't go to the Gospels and see anything about Jesus' ministry in terms of the power and evidence of God, or the evidence of that power of God in his life until after he was baptized in the Holy Ghost. Until he was immersed and identified with that power. You don't believe me? You can just go over to Matthew 3.16 and listen to what it says after Jesus was baptized. After Jesus was baptized... He had just submitted himself to John. John said, I'm not worthy to baptize you. He said, no, you've got to do this. And he identified with that baptism. And then after he, re- he identified and submitted to that baptism, then guess what happened? 
he went up immediately from the water. And, and it says the heaven suddenly opened for him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down upon him. So we see that identification taking place. Jesus identifying with the power of the Holy Ghost in his life. And then and only then from that point on did Jesus' ministry begin really. So I've got a question to ask you. If Jesus, being 100% man, who endured all temptation yet was without sin, he's a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because guess what? He walked in this life subject to those weaknesses just like you and I, I do. But he was without sin. How is that the case? Is it because God gave him an extra ability that we don't have access to? If it is, then it ain't fair. The things he accessed, it's not fair. Oh, no, it's good. It is. Ponder that. That's a Selah moment right there. Pause and think of that. No, I've got to tell you, I've got to submit to you this morning that Jesus was able to walk perfectly. He was able to do the things he did because he continually submitted himself unto the will of the Father. He continually cast his agenda, his life down. In fact, he said, no man takes my life. I lay it down. And that word life he's talking about there is, the, is his suke. He's talking about laying down his, his soul, his, his, his potential to, to decide for himself to go somewhere different, somewhere to take a new agenda, a new purpose aside that from God's. But he did not. And what he did was he walked then in the power of the Holy Ghost, walking the steps that the Father had ordered him to walk in, just like you and I, as righteous children of God, have our steps ordered and can walk in if we'll submit unto that power to be fulfilled in that. Hallelujah. So if Jesus had to have this experience to complete his ministry, then we do too. And, you know, I could talk about Jesus as a man. I gave a little bit of insight into it. And he was 100% man, folks. 100% man. And he was God, too. But he was 100% man. And he had to walk it out as a man does. And that gives us hope because we can walk it out like Jesus did. And you know how he did? By the power of the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. Now let's talk about the promise. Let's talk about the promise now. Acts 1, 4, 8. Just listen to this. You can write it down. Go back and read it later. While he was together with them, he being Jesus, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. Man, I've got to control myself here. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. Folks, here are folks that have just witnessed the greatest thing that have ever taken place in the face of the, on the age of earth. Not just the face of it, but the age of time. The resurrection of the Savior after three days. And that being a fulfillment of prophecy that he announced multiple times to them along the way and said after the third day, you know, tear this temple down and after three days I'll raise, it'll be raised again. I mean, he, Tremendous things were witnessed here, folks. More than anything that had ever been witnessed before. And he's telling them to wait to tell people. Have you ever stopped to think about that? And we know that Jesus was on the earth 40 days after he was raised. That's what it says in John. It said that he appeared to him multiple times over a 40-day period. And he's telling them to wait. How do you choke down on something that you have witnessed that is the most... Incredible, and I hate the word incredible because credible means not credible, incredible. It means you can't ascribe a, a reason, a credibility of reason to it. But it's the most awesome, supernatural, miraculous thing that's ever taken place, and you're told to camp on it. He's telling them, boys and girls, you wait. Why? Why would he tell him? You need to wait for the power to come to deliver the message. He wants us to do it. He wants us to do it like Jesus, like himself did in him proclaiming the good news. But he didn't want us going out in the power of the soul, folks. 
He didn't want us going out in the limitations of the flesh, folks. He wanted them to go out in the power and anointing of the Holy Ghost to preach the gospel to the nations. Baptizing him in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Ghost. And I'm, I'm talking about to heal the sick, to raise the dead, hallelujah, to work. But guess what? None of that power was on them yet because the Holy Ghost hadn't come on them in that power. They weren't identified. They weren't identified in that power yet. So here Jesus is telling them, and I've got to tell you, that you've got to understand the temporal context of this. This is Jesus' last word before he cracked the sky, went, went up in heaven. Do you think it's important? I think whenever, whenever someone is about to leave you that had that kind of significance in my life, I think I'm going to listen to some, especially to the, some of the last things they say to me before they leave me. And this is Jesus' last words to his disciples by, by what we can see in Scripture. While he was together with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. See, there it is, baptism in the Holy Spirit. Jesus' words, red letters in my Bible and yours. Verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? See, they were still holding on to old ideals, even, even in the manifestation and the fulfillment of the prophecies, man, to this degree. Oh, my goodness, they're still holding on to so that soulish thing, the, the, the narrowness, the shallowness of the soulish comprehension of what they, they thought Jesus was there to manifest. He wasn't there to manifest and occupy a physical kingdom. He was there to establish the spiritual kingdom in this world that would come up within anyone who would believe and accept it and that could be able to say to anyone else that the kingdom of God is at now at hand. That had to be established first before the natural kingdom. Hallelujah. So he said, he, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or periods the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So notice that he tells them to wait and carry out the great commission that he had just given them before until they received the power, until they received the Holy Spirit. Why? Because they needed the power to be the witness. They needed the power to do the witnessing. So here it is, folks, the primary purpose of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's to receive and activate His power. And if you look at the word power, it comes from the original language that means explosive power. Not just a little bit of a flow or a little bit of a tingle, but power that can absolutely move mountains. That can certainly move burdens and destroy yokes. Hallelujah. And we see the reason for this power. It's to be witnesses. And without this power, you can never expect the miraculous to work in your lives. Forget it, folks. If you will not be identified with the power of the Holy Ghost, you can forget the miraculous taking place through you. That's not my word. That's what the Scripture says. The witness that Jesus expects us to be, it involves confirmation of His word with signs and wonders following. And witnessing not in man's words, folks, like Paul said, but in the power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit. That's the witnessing that God's called. And it doesn't come through you applying your soul unto learning the things of God and then limiting that application to that realm only. It doesn't come through soul's knowledge and ability, but through the inner being which is energized with his nature, with his ability. And through that inner being then, being energized with uh, something that comes from outside of you, and that's the Holy Spirit's power. Hallelujah. And a perfect example of this is Peter's sermon. Here we see a guy that had just denied Jesus three times after he swore to Jesus, I'll never do anything like that. Here we see a man who comes from the depths of despair from a soulless perspective because he feels like a traitor, folks. 
But here we see a man who believed and followed the word of God when Jesus said to go and wait for the power before you begin giving the message. And when he received the power, let me tell you what, folks. Peter received the raw, full power of the Holy Ghost. He went out and proclaimed to the people after they came down from that upper room. And people began to see the way they were acting like drunks, like people that might have been inebriated or affected by something. And i got to tell you, they were inebriated. They were affected by something because whenever the power of God comes in contact with this realm, it moves things, it affects things, it transforms things. Hallelujah. And those men had just had an experience where they were able to speak freely in a language that was not bound to their understanding, folks. It was a language that was inspired of the Spirit of God that is available for us today in this experience. That is for today. Not for just when the apostles existed. And here Peter walks down them stairs and people are asking, what's going on? And I can't believe this. And these people are drunk. And Peter says, no, they're not drunk as you suppose. Yeah, they're inebriated. Their physical bodies are barely functioning because the anointing is upon them. (laughs) I long for the day that we cannot function in the physical realm for the weight of the glory of God that's in this place. But not just in this place, folks, but when I'm sitting at work, when I'm out (laughs) in Walmart, Because when we get to that place, folks, the anointing is what breaks the yoke. It's what moves the burden. It's what draws men unto him. So Peter comes out, preaches that sermon, 3,000 people. Boom! How would you like to preach a sermon that 3,000 people gave their hearts and lives to Jesus? And I'm not talking about backslidden Christians that are coming back. I'm talking about first-time or converts to the message. Never known it, never identified with it. Man, there are some men that have moved into power. I think about Reinhard Bonnke, dear Lord. Uh, 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 Billy Graham. Thousands of people come to the Lord. Here Peter comes down, 3,000, boom. Added to the church. Because why? Because he had the power to bring the message. He had the power to bring the message. All right. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's a separate experience from salvation. It's a separate experience from salvation. Let me give you some evidence. Luke 10, 30 through 37. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. A lot of times we've heard this so many times from a, you know, a, 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 a good neighbor perspective. And there's wonderful revelation in that. And I do not discount that. The things that we were taught back in Bible school when I was a little kid. Wonderful principles there. But I've got to tell you, the parable of the Good Samaritan really is just a model of, of, of Jesus' work in this life. A man, as he was journeying, I mean, you know, uh, it's talking about Adam. I mean, and he was leaving the place of peace, going down to Jericho, which is not the peace place. Well, that's what, exactly what happened to Adam. He, he forfeited his right in, in relationship with God because of his disobedience. And guess what happened? He fell among thieves. And guess what happened when the thieves got a hold of him? And they stripped him of three, or they did three things to him. They robbed him. They beat him, and they stripped him, you know, uh, or left him half dead. That's what the Bible says. It says they beat him, robbed him, left him. And why is it that the, that the word would say half dead? Well, because I'm going to tell you that relates to spiritual death. Because people that are walking around that are not identified with the life of Christ, having been recreated and made alive again and renewed in that life, they are half-dead folks. You want me to tell you why there's such an emphasis and such a, a, a romance with zombies right now? Because it's an exact example and a type of the way this world is right now, folks. We've got a lot of people walking around half-dead. They don't know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. They have not been recreated a new creature in Christ internally. So they walk around in the physical, in the soulless realms, in that life, in that shallow breath, but they haven't had the full cleansing, mighty rushing wind of the Spirit of God occupy their heart. There are a bunch of zombies in this earth, half dead. So anyway, so we get back to the parable of the Good Samaritan. They left him half dead, stripped him of his raiment, beat him. Those are all types and shadows of what happens in terms of the curse of the law, it's poverty, sickness, and spiritual death. Threefold elements of the curse of the law. That's exactly what you see in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Poverty, stripped of his raiment. Sickness, beaten. 
Okay, what does it say about Jesus in terms of sickness? It says that he was wounded for our transgressions. He's bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace is upon him, and with his stripes, well, you don't get stripes unless you get beaten. And why do you get beaten? It's punishment, folks, because sickness is punishment for sin. And Jesus bore that punishment because by his stripes we were healed. That's what 1 Peter 2.24 says, in words past tense, which means that has been purchased. It's done, folks, in the Spirit. And I can say all that because then what happens is, is the good Samaritan, we can see the Levite and the priest pass by that represent the law, that represent the order and things of the law, and they couldn't help, folks. But when the good Samaritan came, when the good Samaritan came, folks, what did he do? And a Samaritan was despised by Jewish people because they were half-breeds. Guess what Jesus was? He was God. He was man. He was a half-breed. You ever stop to think about that? He was a Samaritan. He became a curse is what the Bible says. Samaritans were cursed from the Jewish perspective. And what did the good Samaritan do? He went over and he, he paid attention. He ministered to that man's needs. And it says he poured in two elements, oil and wine. And guess what oil and wine signify? We talked about oil. We haven't talked about wine they are both symbolic of an essence or an act of the Holy Ghost. The oil of the Holy Spirit is the type of salvation because the Holy Ghost, you know, no man comes to the Father unless he's drawn by him through the Spirit. And then through that Spirit, we're actually born into the Spirit. Born into his body through the Spirit. That's salvation, the oil of God. Then the wine's poured in. Well, guess what? Be not drunk with wine where is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. We see a hooking together of wine and Spirit. Wine is, an ele- or is a symbolic image of the Spirit of God as well. But that infilling of the Spirit of God, that's what the wine is. It's the infilling. It's identification with power. And we see that twofold work of Jesus, the Good Samaritan pouring in the oil and pouring in the wine. So that's a good scriptural reference, I think. We see that Jesus imparts the Holy, Spirit's to his, the Holy Spirit to his disciples in a time that preceded his command to even wait for the Holy Ghost. How can I say that? You can go to your Bible and mine and look in John chapter 20, 19 through 22. This kind of sounds like a lawyer, doesn't it? Exhibit B, Exhibit C, Exhibit D. I'm giving you about Exhibit F right now. John 20, 19 through 22. Listen to what this says. In the evening of that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked. They were scared, folks. They were scared, folks, because of the fear of the Jews. Then Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. Having said this, in verse 20, he showed them his hands and his side. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, in verse 22, he breathed on them and said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. So we see right here, Jesus transmitting the Holy Ghost to them. But yet that took place before he said what he did in Acts chapter 1, 4 through 8. Go to Jerusalem, boys and girls, and wait till the Holy Spirit come upon you. Now, how do we reconcile that? How do we reconcile that? The only way you reconcile that is there's two. There's, there's, there's a distinct uh, indwelling of the Holy Spirit that comes within us whenever we receive salvation, but then there is a distinct identification with the power of the Holy Spirit that comes upon us because of His indwelling that we see in the Acts chapter 2 experience. Does anyone else see that? Acts 8, I mean, folks, you go, you take this home and mull over this. Don't just believe it because I told you. You go home and you ask God, is this correct, if you don't believe it already. Acts 8, 14 through 17, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard, this is enough, now I'm going to give you some actual scriptural examples that show the distinct difference between salvation experience and then the, the infilling or baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if you want to argue, don't argue with me. You go argue with the Scripture. You go argue with the Scripture. Acts chapter 8, 14 through 17, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had welcomed God's message, they sent Peter and John to them. After they went down there, they prayed for them so the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit. 
Verse 16, this is something you need to underline if you're, if you're struggling to understand this. For he had not yet come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I submit to you, how would they have been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ lest they have accepted him as their personal Lord and Savior and had a reason to be identified, to, to identify with that inward work in an outward manner of testimony? Because they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them and, and they received the Holy Spirit. We see a distinction here, folks, I believe, in Scripture. We see a distinction that seems very clear to me. They had already believed. They had been baptized in the name of Jesus. Not in John's baptism, in Jesus' baptism. In his identification with death, burial, and resurrection. In the newness of life that had come within them. But now we see Peter and them coming to actually pray with them to receive the Holy Spirit. Acts 10, 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message, the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded because the gift of the Holy Spirit, notice it says the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they had heard them speaking in other languages and declaring the greatness of God. Here we see the same thing that we see in the, in in the Pentecost experience, now it's been poured out on the Gentiles too. And isn't that what Joel's prophecy said? I'll pour out, in the last days, I'll pour out on all flesh of my spirit. It doesn't say to the Jews. It says to all, all men. And here it is. And, and, the, and the elect were astonished. They also received this power. And they got to speak in other languages, declaring the greatness of God. Peter responded, Can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they asked him to stay for a few days. I believe, thus saith Greg, when I read this scripture, that shows me that the Holy Spirit and salvation really shouldn't be an effort of we get saved and then we got to wait for a long time, some of us more than others. And then the, the, the uh, activity or the uh, evidence of the power of the Holy Ghost and receiving baptism should come way later. We see right here in Cornelius' household, it was simultaneous. As soon We know that they wouldn't be baptized in Jesus lest they had believed and received him as a personal Lord and Savior. But then Paul, uh, Peter ends up turning right around and lays hands on them to receive the Holy Ghost. They received him, spoke in other tongues, and the Jews that were with them were like, man, these guys get it too. And that was one and the same, because then he says, let's get them water baptized, too, while we're at it. Because now they, got, they really do have an ability to have power for testimony. Hallelujah. So how do you receive it? You must be a born-again child of God. I don't have very far to go here, folks, so just stay with me. You must be a born-again child of God. In no case in Scripture does the baptism of the Holy Spirit occur until after salvation. You've got to get the oil first before the wine comes, to put it in my analogy in the, anyway, the way I see the um, parable of the Good Samaritan. Number two, you must be open. You know, this beautiful experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's a free gift. But you must be willing to submit fully to God to receive it. You know what? As I preach this message and as I look at my Lord and Savior as he walked on this earth, he didn't preach to the ones that, had to, that felt like they needed to understand before they believed. Did that just fly over your head? And in fact, the Holy Spirit gave me that word, and I was going to share that before I got up here, but I didn't want to go down rabbit trails. But you know what? Believing has nothing to do with your understanding. Believing is a, persua a confident persuasion. It's a confident persuasion. You know what? I don't need to understand the principles of electricity and how they flow out of this plug right here to receive a benefit from it. I don't need to know that elect free electrons move in there and that if I take a conducting uh, uh, element and stick it in there, those free electrons will come through that conducting element to the next conducting element or the resistive element, and it'll either, it'll either transmit the electricity or it'll heat them up. See, I can give you all kinds of theory behind that because I know a little bit more probably than the average Joe about that, but I don't need to understand to receive the benefit of a light. I can just go back there and switch the switch on, folks. And that's the way it is with believing, and that's the way it is with faith. You don't need to understand the inner workings of everything to do with the Holy Spirit's power. Just believe it and receive it. Just say, I identify with this. I see, I don't, have, I don't understand it, oh God, but I see in your scripture that it seems to be real. If it's real, I want it. 
and be identified in it. Hallelujah. And for those that want to have to sit, sit there and keep wanting more and more argument and belief, I, I'm sorry, I'm not talking to you. You've got to come to the place that you yield your right to understand. The, Jesus said, all things are possible to them that believe. He didn't say all things are possible to them that are able to receive the knowledge and come to an understanding of it. He said all things are possible to them that would believe Oh, help me, Lord. So you must be open. Then, then the thing you do is you ask God, Luke 11, 11 through 13, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, and gives him a, will give him a snake instead? If he asks for an egg, will give him a squirt man? If you then are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those that ask him? And so the last thing you do, believe you receive. It's faith. Believe you receive. If you ask God, no, he's going to give you what you've asked for. Believe you receive it. Hallelujah. Listen to what Paul said in Galatians to the church. 3-2. I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Hearing of faith. That's how you received it. It didn't come by the works of the law and your understanding of it. Now, the evidence of the Holy Spirit. CJ talked about this last week wonderfully. Go get the tape. The first thing you'll receive, and this is an evidence, uh, we need to see fruit for something to know its reality is present underneath, don't we? One of the fruits of being baptized in the Holy Spirit is to receive a clear, your, your spiritual language. And what the spiritual language is, is a language you don't understand in the natural. It's a language that is the divine utterance of the Holy Spirit that comes within your spirit. And then if you'll open your mouth, we'll actually connect those dimensions to, to allow you to speak out inspired utterance by way of the Holy Spirit through your spirit. And it's clear, spirit-born communication to God. That's what it is. And you see it in Acts chapter 2 when the disciples, when that... When the Holy Spirit fell, what came? Uh, tongues came upon them. They spoke in other tongues, other languages. We see it in Cornelius' household. I just talked about that. When they were baptized, they spoke in other languages, baptized in the Spirit, began to speak with tongues. Okay? We talked about that last week. So the last point, and this is something that applies probably to a lot of us in here. Folks, once we've had this experience, this isn't a one-time shot. <laughs> You know that, don't you, Charlie? <laughs> it's not a one-time shot. Because here's the deal. You identify with it. You receive it. You walk in it. You identify with it. You receive it. You walk in it. It's like breathing. I take in that breath. I let out the respired wastes of the flesh and the soul. I take in the breath of the Spirit. I let out the respired waste of the flesh and the soul. It's just like breathing. Once you're filled, then you can continually be filled. Ephesians 5.18 says, Pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise. This is Paul talking to, to, to spirit-filled believers. Making the most of every time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless actions, but be filled with the Spirit. And that old language, the original language there, be filled, is a continual action verb, but being filled. In other words, it's something that continues to happen to us as we submit to it. And how do you continue to be filled? Man, I love this. It gives us practical things here. Speak to one another in psalms, in hymns, in spiritual songs. Sing and make melody with your heart to the Lord. What were we doing about 30 minutes ago? Yeah, that's right. We need to spend more time doing that because guess what? We're being filled with the Spirit. <laughs> That's what the Scripture says. And then Acts 13, 52, my last Scripture. And the disciples, and I want you to see this is Acts 13. This is way past. We've gone through Cornelius' experience. We've gone through other experiences and people being filled, miracles taking place. We know Peter and James and John, all of them are filled with the Holy Ghost. They're moving in the power. They're already identified with it. But yet we see here in Acts 13, 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So you're telling me, Greg, that they were filled again? Yeah, I'm telling you they're filled again. Hallelujah. 
This is a river, folks, that comes from us. It's not a reservoir, the contents of which we discharge and we never receive another load again. It's a river that's meant to be a flow that continues, and the origination of it is, is God. And let me tell you what, God's supply is endless. Hallelujah. All right, so we laid some things out this morning. We went past time, I know that. But I took the time that I planned to give. So there you go, and, and that the Holy Spirit intended to give. I felt it was important to lay some groundwork there. And so I, just, I would ask you just to stand this morning before we're dismissed. And I would ask this morning, if you have not been identified with the power if you don't understand your identity in the Holy Spirit, having heard this word this morning, would you act on it through simple belief? Would you be the one that would just simply respond, would yield your right to understand and just go with the inward witness that's telling you this is right, I need this, and come and receive it? I can show you through Acts, all the different ways that the Holy Spirit was ministered to people. Sometimes it was ministered whenever Paul or Peter and them were simply speaking. The Holy Ghost would just fall and manifest on people, and they would speak in other tongues, receiving that power. Sometimes they would lay hands on them, and it would be transmitted, you know, and, and the evidence would manifest that way. I don't look at any one particular method and say that's the way it has to be because I leave it up to the Father God and the person's belief. What do you believe? Do you believe this is a scorpion? Do you believe this is a, that this is a snake? What are you asking the Father for? Jesus said, you ask the Father for bread, you're going to get bread. You ask the Father for the Holy Ghost, you're going to get the Holy Ghost. Last time I checked, God's not a man that he should lie. Hallelujah. So I would just ask this morning... Would you, would you look inward if you want to receive this? I'm happy to pray with you. We have ministry teams of folks that are spirit-filled that have already been in field this way. They're happy to pray with you. And I would just ask, I would ask that the ministry teams come forward. Is that okay, Pastor CJ? And before I dismiss those of you all that, that are particularly drawn this way, I would ask those that are drawn to respond to this message. You want to receive... Perhaps, though, you find yourself a person that has been filled with the Spirit of God, baptized. You've identified with this, but maybe it's been a long time since you've really identified with that power. You want to be refilled, refired. Well, then you come forward, too. Praise God. We'll pray. We'll, we'll agree with you. And really, all this boils down to is you believing that just like that light so or that power socket over there, that when your belief is the way you plug into, is how you're going to plug into it. I believe I'm going to plug into that, and I'm, there's going to be a flow. <laughs> Hallelujah. So I would just ask for those of you all that want to, please come forward right now. Anybody. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father God. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise you. Anybody else, please come forward. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Simply believe. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Father, we're grateful. We look to you and declare we believe. We're not of those that shrink back and are destroyed, but we're of those who believe and are saved. Hallelujah. We believe, we believe now is the day, O oh God, always, now, 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 Father God is the day to encounter your mercy, to encounter your presence, Lord God, to respond, Father, to your word, and we respond now. We believe and we ask, O oh God, to be filled again with your Holy Spirit, O oh Father. Hallelujah. O oh God, light our fire, Father God. O oh God, increase the wick's presence and draw the oil. Hallelujah, of, of the Spirit of God in our hearts to burn brighter, to burn longer. Hallelujah. Thank you, O oh God. Thank you, O oh God, for your outpouring. 
It's our, the oil's already hit the garment. The Holy Ghost is here among our midst. We just identify with it. In Jesus' name, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I just want to encourage you, if you have not received your prayer language yet, and you're sitting there thinking and hesitating and going back and forth, back and forth, having that battle in your soul, I just want to encourage you just to, just to surrender. Remember the call that Jesus made to us earlier about just surrendering to him. And let this be your surrender to him. Say, okay, Lord, I want it all. I'm not going to let my understanding or fear stop me, but I want it all. I'm coming to you and just saying, Lord, I want this. I want this. And Lord, we do thank you for your goodness. We just thank you for your encouragement today. We thank you for the blessing of your word, the power of your Holy Spirit today. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives. And Lord, as you're building that army, Lord, we say yes, we will be part of that army. To be dispensers of hope into this world. To take the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit and to share and minister to people. To see the bondages broken. To see hope. See salvation displayed upon people's lives. And we thank you, Father, that we get to be a part of that, to see your kingdom manifested in powerful and wonderful ways, to see Jesus glorified. And we say yes to you, Father. We say yes to you. And Lord, we just thank you that we had this opportunity today just to love on you, to worship, and to celebrate together. And I just speak the blessing of God on every person, every family here represented. And I just thank you for your blessing on the children on every household. And I thank you, Father, that the households in this church are going to be places where your presence, where you inhabit, where you live and dwell. Not just visit, but where you live and dwell. Because we welcome you and we say, Holy Spirit, make yourself at home. Thank you, Jesus. Bless everyone here with your joy and your peace. And we say thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.